You're listening to Chicago Writes, a podcast of the Chicago Writers Association. Now is the time to join Chicago Writers Association. It's open to writers and authors anywhere in the world. Unlock a wealth of writer and author resources, programs, and benefits for just $25 per year by visiting chicagorights.org or click on the link in the notes below. Chicago Writers Association membership, by the way, makes a great gift. It is around 3500 BC that the first documented surviving writing first appears. It seems that writing was invented to facilitate accounting, to establish concepts of ownership and perhaps even debt. Accounting is a way of managing ownership, a way of maintaining order among individuals and heading off or resolving conflict. The learned skills of reading and writing can lead to stratification within a society, separating those with access through reading and comprehension from those who lack that ability. In a June 2021 paper published in the journal Nature, Francesco Dorico, an archaeologist at the University of Bordeaux in France, looked again at part of a hyena bone uncovered in France in the 1970s. Dorico believed that a series of etchings by Neanderthals represents a rudimentary system of accounting. The ability to recognize numbers, a characteristic called subitizing, has been observed in fowl, insects, and fish, meaning that the origins of numbers in math date back at least 3.8 billion years when the branches of those species began to differentiate. Rudimentary number systems necessary for accounting, the ancestor of writing, is as old as humanity. 15,000 years ago, the inhabitants of Dolny Vestianitsi in what is now the Czech Republic had, it appears, a number system, noted by tally marks on a bone. It was an age of invention. During the so-called Gravedian period, in Europe, saws and harpoons were invented. While the inhabitants of Dolny Vestianitsi were learning to line woven baskets with clay to hold water, the oldest pottery and cooking vessels were being made in China. Around 13,000 BC to 12,700 BC, we find the earliest evidence of domestication of the pig. People in southern Europe and the Levant traded for Baltic amber. The climate was warming as glaciers receded in the northern hemisphere. It was a good time to be alive. But accounting is one thing. The abstraction of literature is quite another. Or is it? As a species, we are tied inextricably to both. Storytelling, and by extension literature, is a way of accounting in ideas, mores, lessons, and concepts instead of raw numbers. In looking around the planet at contemporary indigenous cultures, the universality and importance of storytelling traditions becomes quickly apparent. Such traditions are all too evident on cave walls dating back at three caves in Spain, at La Pasiega, Ardales, and Maltravesio, as far back as 66,700 years ago. 
Storytelling, measured in degrees, can be found in the animal and insect kingdom as well. The so-called honeybee dance is truly a storytelling activity and alludes to the possibility of a much deeper biological basis for the far more and deliberate, but no less instinctual, human trait of storytelling. The honeybee dance is the only language of this sort known in nature outside of our human species. At a very basic level, the honeybee dance, which communicates a story about the direction, distance, and type of nectar or pollen to the hive, is pure insect theater. In 1973, Dr. Carl von Frisch received a Nobel Prize in medicine for his research in interpreting the dance language of honeybees. There is no direct link between honeybees and humans. That ancestral split likely took place sometime around 3.8 billion years ago. Called the last universal common ancestor, or LUCA, these simple bacteria developed the DNA which make up all living things on the planet today. The ensuing 3.8 billion years allowed for the incredible diversity that we see today. It would be a curious thing if we only found storytelling imperatives in honeybees alone. But what exactly are we looking for in the exploration of storytelling outside of our own species? We only have to look to the species with the largest brain on the planet, whose highly developed neocortex controls conscious thought and language. I am, of course, speaking about our friends the whales. Humpback whales engage in a form of communication called singing. Embedded within these songs are repeating patterns, like the refrain in music. They are complex, lasting as much as 30 minutes, and can be heard underwater for up to 100 miles. But we have no idea what they mean. Different pods of killer whales have a dialect unique to each pod. Calves are born with limited vocal ability that grows and becomes more complex with age. There is evidence that dolphins and perhaps sperm whales have monikers used to identify one another. Cats offer themselves to sniff or rub against other cats in a rudimentary sort of communication revealing intention, recognition, or where they have been. The ancient story of the Great Flood which is found in disparate cultures around the world, might be a storytelling relic by our Ice Age ancestors lamenting sea level rise, which erased lowland coastal areas, disconnecting tribes or people from ancestral homelands. Such a scenario, set at the end of the Ice Age, roughly 11,700 years ago, is the only commonality between peoples with great flood stories from Mesoamerica to India, the ancient Greeks, indigenous Australians, and people who crossed former land routes in the now archipelagos of the Philippines and Malaysia. The story of the Great Flood is first written down in the Epic of Gilgamesh, dating to the 7th century BC, between 100 and 400 years before the Abrahamic story in Genesis. There is evidence from cave paintings in which animals, no longer inhabiting geographical regions associated with cave art, describes their post-flood lament or reverence for disappeared animals. Storytelling and writing had purpose. Though it would appear that writing was invented for accounting and not necessarily for the expressive muses of humanity. The ascent of this nascent and ever-evolving technology was revolutionary and inevitable. For larger societies to communicate beyond a small clan or group or to create lasting communication, accounting, issue resolution, and recollection, the invention of writing was a necessity. In Mesopotamia, it was cuneiform writing and later hieroglyphs in Egypt. Letters, numerals, and images were carved or pressed into stone or clay, likely because those materials were plentiful 
durable, and cheap. Those first clay stones were readily available along the banks of the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, along with reeds that could be cut to serve as a sort of cuneiform stylus to press into the soft clay tablets. This is from the Sumerian poet Enmerkar and the Lord of Arata, circa 1800 BC. His speech was substantial and its contents extensive. The messenger whose mouth was heavy was not able to repeat it. Because the messenger whose mouth was tired was not able to repeat it, the Lord of Kolaba padded some clay and wrote the message as if on a tablet. Formerly, the writing of messages on clay was not established. Now, under that sun and on that day, it was indeed so. The Lord of Kolaba inscribed the message like a tablet. It was just like that. The messenger was like a bird flapping its wings. He raged forth like a wolf following a kid. In a pinch, this is a far better read than a counting text listing bales of hay or the number of sheep. Though we find the first surviving samples of writing on papyrus dating to the 3rd millennium BC, it doesn't take a great deal of imagination to understand that the work of early writers utilizing organic materials like bark papers, pressed reeds, or papyrus were long ago lost to history. In leaky, rodent-plagued primitive buildings, their organic durability was dubious. Clay and stone information, whether on walls or tablets, could be seen as a commodity and may have helped anchor and strengthen communities. The first literature appears to us from Sumer in what is today present-day Iraq. It comes to us in the magnificent story to begin all stories. The first author, named Enheduanna, was a woman. She was the high priestess of the ancient Mesopotamian goddess of desire and fertility, Inanna. From the start, literature was grounded in the grander experience of mankind. Not even the lofty position of sovereigns and royalty, with their power, ruthlessness, and self-proclaimed deification, could dissuade the true illuminating calling of literature. Like the visual arts and theater, the target was always realism, and by extension, surrealism. The ability to render realism would prove a long and arduous evolutionary process. Illumination was a process, and that process required time, revolution, and most especially the persecution of the writer. On an Akkadian relief circa 2350 to 2150 BC, roughly 1200 years after the first appearance of cuneiform accounting, the goddess Inanna fully embodies her mythic charge. Her face and attractive features are joyful, even mischievous. She is scantily clad. A bare leg extends from beneath a tiered gown fastened at her left shoulder. The goddess appears to wear a tall, stylized headdress with strands of long braided hair extending from beneath to flow upon her shoulders. Wings extend from her back. Simple bracelets adorn her wrists. The Sumerians worshipped Inanna perhaps as early as the end of the 5th century BC. She is our first recorded god. The Assyrians called her Ishtar. She was worshipped for almost 7,000 years. The so-called cult of Ishtar surviving in parts of Mesopotamia until the 18th century AD. There is but one scant image of our first author, Enheduanna, taken from a carved alabaster disc. It shows the high priestess dressed much the same as Inanna, 
wearing an elegant tiered gown with long braided hair. She is ubiquitous among three women of apparent lesser rank, with short-cut hair and simpler gowns. It is interesting to note the revered place and Hedwana held in the social order, but also the prominence literacy held among women in Sumer. It leaves one to wonder if women, the force carriers of human culture, invented literature while men preoccupied themselves with accounting and ownership. But there is something of even greater significance in the writings of Enheduanna, at least for our story. Illumination is unrelenting. Enheduanna's poem, Inanna Prefers the Farmer, tells the tale of the goddess lover Dumuzid, competing with Enkemdu, the god of farming, for Inanna's hand in marriage. And Kimdu is quiet and peaceful, persistent in his labor of love, laudable and teachable qualities for the everyman farmer. These are essential qualities for an agrarian society more beholden to the climate than to the still somewhat nascent technology of farming. Rather like our little piggy who builds the brick house that the big bad wolf was unable to huff and puff and blow down. These are prudent and imperative qualities for an agriculture-dependent society, because a single poor harvest might imperil an entire community. In that context, the simple farmer is far more important than the soldier, and in some respects, the king. Here, literature begins to define us. That last point is fundamental. It describes a sea change which can only be ascribed to settled agri-based societies where for thousands of years in cave paintings and upon the walls of the first settled communities, around 6500 BC, the armed hunter predominated. In urban Sumer, circa 3500 BC, a scant 3,000 years later, the farmer has achieved greater prominence. A successful crop was everything to those Neolithic and Bronze Age communities. A single bad harvest caused by blight or drought, floods or locusts, could imperil or wipe out a community. Kings and sovereigns were humbled, at least, to that ever-present possibility. This is the context of a story in which there is an honesty and an enlightened intimacy throughout. This excerpt from The Curse of Akkad reveals a greater connection and empathy which would remain latent for the next 3,000 years or so, at least as far as we know from the surviving archaeological record. For the first time since cities were built and founded, the great agricultural tracts produced no grain. The inundated tracts produced no fish. The irrigated orchards produced neither syrup nor wine. The gathered clouds did not rain. The moss grum did not grow. At that time, one shekel's worth of oil was only one half quart. One shekel's worth of grain was only one half quart. These sold at such prices in the markets of all the cities. He who slept on the roof died on the roof. He who slept in the house had no burial. People were flailing themselves from hunger. And Heduana, daughter of King Sargon of Akkad, was the first known author and perhaps songwriter. It is likely that the story was sung or chanted to the music of lutes, lyres, percussion instruments, and wind instruments like flutes and horns. Please let us know in the comments below if you like the story of literature. If you do, we will bring you more. Coming up on this episode of Chicago Writes, branding expert Michael Finney. And in February, I spoke with David W. Berner as he released a new novel on the online publishing platform Substack. We revisit that conversation and bring you an update on the numbers and his experience two months into that project.
David W. Berner is embracing the online publishing platform Substack with the release of his latest serialized novel, Rainbow Man. The first two chapters, or the first audio chapter, was just released two days ago on the 14th, right? Yeah, the, the first chapter in text was released on the well, a few, few days ago, the two audio versions of chapter one and two are already out there. They were kind of like a bonus if you want to kind of get started. So they're out there if you want to hear them, sure. He read a bit too, one of Rick Steves' guidebooks about the south of Spain. A bit of the sun also rises, returning to the pages he had dog-eared. And for whom the bell tolls, he had carried all three on board, all old paperbacks, he read the section in the guide on the food and wines of Granada and Ronda, the chapters on the travels to Pamplona and Sun, and the last pages of Bell. He had loved the book's ending, another novel on his list that he had finally conquered, beautifully written despite the machismo that runs through all the sentences. And of course, the hero carried his name, Robert. But what Robert wasn't prepared for was how much that ending, one of sacrifice, loss, love, and death, would distress him in the second reading flying high above the Atlantic. What, what's been the reaction so far? We're, Substack is kind of a new platform, not entirely new, and it's it's got a growing fan base, I suppose, is for, for lack yeah. of a better word. I guess the acceptability is what it is. People uh-huh. are starting to figure out what, what this is. It's not a new idea, serialized fiction, but it is new to have it the platform online. Yeah. And Substack allows you to do it in a way that permits you to have people sign up and they get it almost like a newsletter. And the idea is interesting to me. Uh, and when I started to read uh, that Salman Rushdie was working on it, uh, Pat, I've been following Patty Smith on there, which is one of my favorite artists of, of many, you know, many genres. Many really styles, musical and writing. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I and I just think that it was interesting. And I, and I, I, I started kind of, you know, researching a little bit and studying a little bit. And I talked mm-hmm. with a writer, uh, a young woman who... Um, is doing some fantasy gothic kind of story on there, and she's uh, done before, and she's a great writer, Kelly Griffin. I talked to her a little bit, and I said, you know what the heck? I have this one novel that I haven't really pushed. I haven't put out there in the world yet to, to try to get it published someplace, and I thought, you know, this might be the right one. Mm-hmm. So I thought I'd give it a shot, and so we're going to do it. And it's 25 chapters. Um, you can go on and start reading chapter one right now. Chapter two will be next week. You can sign up and it's for free and you can read it. And if you like it and if you find like you're hooked, then you can sign up to subscribe and it basically will cost you the price of a book, uh, a hardcover book. So as you said, it's really not a new idea. First of all, serializing no. the novels. Leo Tolstoy did it. Mark, did it. Mark Twain Dickens. Uh, yeah. a, a host of, of of amazing and classic writers, but this is also a marketing platform akin to an updated version of the old direct mail flyers that artists used to produce. I, I used to manage a Crown Books, if you remember Crown Books, uh, sure. many yeah. many years ago. But I used to manage a Crown Books, and publishers were always bringing in three and four uh, four sheet direct mail pieces about new authors. Even yeah. even established authors, this is this yeah. is just an e way of doing that. In which instead of coming to your mailbox or putting it in your hand, it's going to your email. Yeah, that's that's all it is. Um, and you're right that serialized fiction is not something new, but this is new. And I think for some people, the, the casual reader, 
Mm-hmm. I think that they're a little bit skeptical, like, I'm not sure how this works. I mean, I had a few friends when I was telling them that I was doing it, they were sort of familiar, but not familiar. And they had a, I had to sort of explain how it's going to work. And really, it's very seamless. Once you mm-hmm. know what you're doing, it's a seamless thing. It, it's as if you already had the book in your hands and you were just uh, permitting yourself to read one chapter at a time. Now, that doesn't mean you have to read every chapter every week and stay with it. You can subscribe and let the whole thing fall into your hands in a couple of weeks and then start reading it. I mean, you can do it many different ways. It Mm -hmm. doesn't mean you have to be locked in every week to read the chapter. So I find this format, this platform, very interesting. That's not to say that I am against traditional publishing with the bookstores and all that. I love them. I uh, They're dear to my heart. I will continue to do that. But this is an interesting platform that I think it just might need a little bit of, of research on my part. And mm-hmm. it might need a little bit of, uh, you know, a, a, a give and take, see what happens. I mean, that's kind of what I'm doing. I'm, I'm going in with it with a really low expectation. Yeah, I think it really works for people who have a huge, authors who already have a huge following. Yeah, uh, you know, Salman Rushdie is not going to have a problem having people sign up for his stuff. <laughs> Patty Smith's not going to have a problem signing up for his stuff. So people like me, somewhere in the middle range, I, I don't have that kind of following. So it's going to be interesting to see how we how we can shift people to that medium. And so far, I think it's going pretty well. I've got a number of subscribers already, at least for the free, mm-hmm. and that is great because it allows them to read it and see if they even like what they're reading and can stick around if they want to sort sort of akin to picking up a book in a bookstore, reading the first chapter and then saying, you know, I'm going to buy this. Yeah. So it's the same kind of thing. Yeah. Your, uh, your website is davidwburner.com. How are you, how are you marketing Rainbow Man beyond, beyond the website? Mm. You posted that very prominently, the Substack effort on, on the, the front page of your, your website. Yeah. Very prominently, but but are you doing anything else? We've we've talked with a couple authors in the past couple of weeks who say, you know, the key to any marketing is an outlay of of dollars. Yeah, I think it is, and I agree with that too. I think sometimes though that you know I I have had good success and 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 not so good success when it comes to doing traditional uh-huh. sort of publishing marketing. Yeah, uh, I am I, I I I do not claim to be an expert at this. Uh, but I think I've done it enough that I kind of know what works for me. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes the traditional route, sending out press releases, trying to get a radio interview, doing all those kind of, the world's changed. It just, it some of that stuff doesn't work anymore. Uh, it, 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 it opens people's eyes and it opens people's, uh, you know, thought process to maybe what they want to read, but does mm-hmm. it get a, get hands on a book? Does it get eyes on a webpage? I'm not so sure. Sometimes I have found that using social media, and using it the right way, and I've learned how to use it the right way, I think, over time, is really a, a really strong tool. And I think the trick to social media, at least for me, is to initially say, hey, I got this thing, I'd love you to be a part of it. But then to kind of back off on the hard sell and mm-hmm, to just mm-hmm. become just become a sort of um, another person in the in the wheel that is saying hello and, and trying to get people to feel comfortable with your sort of your presence on those social media platforms. Mm-hmm. If you continue to do the hard sell, I think it turns people off. So it's a little bit of a trick, and I'm still learning. But you know, please say that I don't know an author. I don't know an author that likes marketing. Yeah, <laughs> there are very yeah. few. Yeah. There are very few that like this. I don't mind getting out there. I'm I'm perfectly fine doing interviews like this. I love this kind of stuff. That sort of churn and burn that you got to do it, it really gets old. Yeah. It's hard. Yeah. Please say that again about the importance of social media 
I know, and, and you and I have had this discussion on online once or twice about the, the necessity for, for social media, for small business entrepreneurs and artists to get their, to get their product out there with, without a terrific outlay uh, and and in some in some cases uh, zero outlay in in yeah. money. Yeah, I, I I can't stress enough how important social media is. It's where everybody gets all kinds of information today. Mm-hmm. And can it be saturated? Absolutely, it can be saturated. So you, the key to what you're doing is try to find your niche. Try to find that little sliver of space where mm-hmm. people are interested in what you have to say, whether it be your genre or whatever it may be. I really believe that it's a good idea to embrace as many social medium social media as you can mm-hmm. and but find the ones that you feel most comfortable in some people feel more comfortable in, in instagram others feel better on tiktok but it also it's about knowing your audience because if your audience is a, is an older audience maybe they're not tiktokers okay <laughs> they may be more twitter people or facebook or you know so knowing your audience is really, really key because you can talk your brains off on TikTok, but it may not be getting to the ears you want it to get. We'll get an update on David's experience and results with Substack a little bit later in the program. But first, I had the opportunity to speak with author, filmmaker, and branding coach Michael Finney about the importance of branding for authors and artists. Michael Finney is the author of 1893 Chicago's Columbia Exposition, Arts and Culture from the Doorstep of the 20th Century. Michael is the host of his own podcast, The Episodic, available everywhere you get your podcast fix. And Michael Finney is also a business strategy consultant focused on media and message. The website is michael-finney.com. This is a bit of my conversation with Michael. The further we go into the future, I think that more and more people are going to be looking at establishing their personal brand in terms of creating, for lack of better terms, sales funnels, you know? And the thing about that is to say that like, you want to be able to say like, these are the, these are the things I'm associated with these projects or these ideas, these concepts. And I want to make sure that if people are looking for those things that they're finding the right person. And also it goes the opposite direction too. We're not only like trying to guide people towards us, but we're also trying to inversely disseminate our messages out to them. So you really want to start with these kernels and build up on that. So that's kind of what the the workbook and the video course do mm-hmm. is walks users through the process of establishing a a design manual or a collection of assets that they're able to deploy over and over again, uh, wherever they find themselves digitally or physically. And that way it makes, it makes things easier. And just, you're able to reach for these things and say, this is what I need a profile pic. I need these uh, short blurbs, or I need these other graphical elements or X, Y, Z, whatever the need might be so that you can quickly uh, create blogs or videos or podcasts or anything else you know that, that you might desire to to distribute. And and I'd like to underscore the idea of differentiating yourself from the market. We we had a conversation yesterday 
with uh, with a local uh, a local musician, Asher George, who I'm going to bring up uh, about some things that he said uh, and a professor of his at DePaul said uh, in in a little bit. He mentioned I was asking him how uh, ahead of this conversation how he's able to differentiate himself in the marketplace, and he brought up this, which is which is an outstanding and, and should be a rather intuitive observation that for a musician, and this holds, holds true for authors as well in the digital market, digital world, that the number of uploads will quickly bury a new artist. And, and simply relying on, on an organic reach is, is not enough anymore. But you need to begin with a brand, whether, whether the brand is Michael Dash Finney or something, something else that creates your particular space in, in the market. Do I, do I have that correct? Well, uh, you know, I don't want to say that organic reach isn't enough because I think that as soon as you start to get into paid reach, you're kind of, you're creating a wall, to be honest with you. As soon as yeah. you start to use that, it, it's kind of an addictive thing to where uh, these algorithms know that you have paid in. And so they'll start to diminish your organic reach. If you can't create and leverage an organic community and drive traffic that way, mm -hmm. the idea that you're going to augment that with paid reach is kind of a black hole, to be honest with you. So I don't advocate for people to start that way. And the other side of it is that like organic, developing organic reach, developing an organic community interest in that sense is kind of like the market proving whether or not what you're doing is compelling mm -hmm. too. You know, if you're not getting click throughs at the very least oh, and purchases on the other end, then like perhaps what you're doing is not uh, voiced right or attractive mm -hmm. to folks. So mm -hmm. that's kind of important. I wouldn't say that you want to start kind of putting money into search advertising or social media advertising right out of the gate mm -hmm. without an audience because it, it, it just doesn't determine things as well. Now that's to say that like, if you have built an audience or you do have um, you know, a background in some stuff and you know how to utilize paid search, that can be a great tool to add into things. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you, and you kind of need some of the base level assets. Um, if you're not collecting data, you're not getting emails from folks, or you're not maybe getting them funneled into a newsletter where you can establish a drip campaign to follow up then, you know, that, that might not be the way to go. But I think that like really building all that stuff out first mm -hmm. uh, in, in low or no cost scenarios is, is the best way to go because it begins to give you a collection of folks that you can reach out to, follow up with, establish communication with, uh, potentially even generate more content about uh, your project or other projects that you can basically begin to meter out over time. And that way you're not kind of stuck A-B testing a bunch of ads. And, uh, you know, look, th there are lots of startups uh, out in the world who think they have the solution and they're just burning capital. They're burning VC investment dollars and they fail. And like, it really doesn't matter how big their advertising budget is because they're 
ultimately going to be nine to nine out of 10 or 99 out of a hundred of the projects that just don't, they're not able to turn the corner on that. So that's, uh, you know, I don't want to discredit what he's saying. I think that like he probably is in a scenario where he's kind of established a, a large enough audience and he's mm-hmm. able to leverage that network to make paid advertising uh, extend the viability of his organic campaigns. Yeah. Right? All right. So let's get to uh, how to create a personal brand in 10 steps. First of all, how do people find the course? Uh, I, I, we're we're going to post here in the notes, michael-finney.com. Yeah. So you can connect to the book or the video course via mm-hmm. my website. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is currently available on Udemy or um, Gumroad. So those are the two places where I'm distributing the video course. The book, it's a workbook, you know, so basically there are a couple of bookend chapters that just kind of address uh, concepts and things like that mm-hmm, that are mm-hmm. loosely about branding and identity. But really uh, each chapter is a, uh, it's instructional. So you get introduced to ideas and then you are told to uh, perform X, Y, and Z thing. Mm -hmm. So that kind of walks you through and it's really, you know, it's self-guided in that sense in the book. I do offer consultation with the Gumroad packages. Mm -hmm. So if that's something to where you say like, I have no idea, I really need somebody to help me kind of like even begin to formulate my Mm -hmm. ideas. You know, I'm, I'm obviously willing to do that too, but you know, you know, wherever you're coming from, whether it's at absolute zero ground level, or if you have kind of already established some of your trajectory in the sense mm-hmm. that maybe you already have a website, maybe you already have like a logo or something like that, you're able to jump into this thing and proceed through mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, work your way to producing and remixing content and transmuting one type of content into another type of content. So, you know, if you are already a strong blogger, then this might uh, help you convert things into audio or video. If you are a video person, then you might work the other direction and Mm -hmm. uh, begin to say like, how can I extend the viability or the formats of Mm -hmm. what I've already created? Because I think that somebody who does that a lot with, with my content, you know, I want to be able to get as much mileage out of this stuff and to be able to instruct other folks. Indeed. So, so it's a video with, with a book accompaniment or a video series with a book accompaniment. You know, the video course really stands on its own and I actually created a lot of stuff for the video course Mm -hmm. because the, the video course came out after the book. So the book came out last year. I got the video course out this year. I created a lot of unique assets for that. So I'm really kind of thinking of going back and updating the book to include some of those graphical elements that I think uh, mm-hmm. drive the message, you know, a little a little better than I might have in words only or words predominantly within the book. And the book right. is short; it's only like fifty pages. So it's it's re- like I said, it's really focused on generating output for yeah. people. It's not meant to be like this massive, uh, like in, uh, informational thing. It's not mm-hmm, a textbook. Mm-hmm. It is a workbook, you know, mm-hmm. and, and that's the, and that's to say like, you could pound through this thing in 10 days if you're mm-hmm. you know, that much of a hustler or faster, you know, depending on how far along you are it might be something that like, you know, you're loosely working through this thing to mm-hmm. where, you know, you just want to focus on something for a week 
And then maybe next month you're going to focus on another one and that's how you kind of approach it. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it is, you know, self-guided if you want, handheld if you like Mm -hmm. uh, from me in in another sense. So it's very flexible. By the way, I saw it on uh, on Amazon. The workbook for uh, I think the Kindle was nine ninety nine. The paperback was fourteen ninety nine. If people are taking taking the course, obviously the the point of what you're trying to you're trying to teach people is how to is how to think of themselves as a business first of all, and then translate that focus that brand into into a a monetization. Yes. Well, yeah, I think, I think so. You know, I would say I want people to think of themselves as an entity, right? Okay, and, that, okay. and that entity is, you know, perhaps business-like, but there's no reason that you can't apply this stuff to, uh, you know, a nonprofit organization or a loose association of folks. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it really is flexible. So in that sense, yes, it's, name says personal brand, but it could be small business. Mm-hmm. It could be, uh, like I said, an informal collection of people, uh, you know, trying to develop a community geographically or digitally. It could even be anything really. It could mm-hmm. be even used for a film project in the sense that like I have a documentary out and then I was kind of looking to expand that mm-hmm. and pursuing grant funding. And to be able to submit to grants or even to submit my my finished documentary to, uh, you know, like film contests and things like that, it, it required a collection of assets. So even before I had created some of the standalone uh, social media presence that exists for what is the Chicago 1893 project, I was already creating these assets to be able to submit for film festivals via uh, what's called Film Freeway. Mm-hmm. So I had begun to, to collect these things up and I was like, okay, well, they even are asking you <laughs> as you're putting this information in, do you have a Twitter account or an Instagram or a Facebook? And it's like, well, if you're asking me for it, then I probably should. So mm-hmm. I'm going to go do that as well. And like I had done that for other things. So it wasn't, you know, like, oh gosh, I can't believe they're asking for this. What a surprise. It was just mm-hmm. kind of like, okay, I w- had been so busy creating this stuff that I hadn't uh, yet kind of backtracked mm-hmm. and done the, the very necessary promotional components. So in that sense, I think that like you can start with these branding processes before you ever mm-hmm. even release mm-hmm. anything. Because again, it goes back to what we were talking about earlier, developing a community who mm-hmm. want to participate in the conversation, but then potentially also funding so crowdfunding, uh, you know, is obviously something people are familiar with. Yeah. I think it's a great way, again, of testing the viability and say, like, look, you know, can we even get enough influx of dollars to begin the first phase of developing this project? And, mm-hmm. you know, for me, as a person who has done the entire Chicago 1893 project mm-hmm. on my own, besides a little bit of musical contribution from some great artists, in that sense, uh, it's been it's been fantastic to be able to build that up from the ground w- at a very low budget, and then begin to generate dollars from it. Begin to even generate conversational opportunities like this from from these projects. I don't think that you have to necessarily start with you know a product in the market or a service in the market. Mm-hmm. You can you can do what is talked about as like 
you know, you're discussing your minimum viable product, your, uh, your MVP in, in the, in the business sense, in the startup sense Mm -hmm. to where like, before you even make an offer of a product or a service, you're really getting out there and talking with potential clientele to say like, you know, what problem could we solve with this thing? Mm -hmm. Uh, or what, what pain points do you have and how can I help you uh, lessen them or alleviate them with this product or this service in, in the sense of a documentary or in any sense with artwork, you know, it is about informing or entertaining. And like, that is the problem that we're solving. But, but realistically, like if you're an artist, you say you're a musician, uh, you know, we're always kind of very focused on, you know, and I'm a musician as well. We're always very focused on like my emotional expression or a, a musician's emotional expression, a painter's mm. emotional kind of conveying these things. Mm-hmm. And like, you know, that doesn't necessarily, you know, speak to the things that people identified within your work, right? They, yeah, they yeah. might see something else or they might really be dialed into a particular aesthetic that you have explored in the past. And if that's what's selling, go ahead and Mm -hmm. like sell that thing to them, create more of those things to sell to those people that doesn't compromise you as an artist, because you can still do all the other things that you want to do to express yourself. And in time, or uh, maybe because you have developed that community, they're going to say, Oh, now they're doing this thing and I want to participate in that because that's where they're at. And I have identified with that artist in the past and perhaps I will identify with these things or, you know, I'll be the early adopter to use a tech or startup term to say like, oh, they really saw something. They were, they were like ahead of the curve on this, this thing or this technique or uh, this technology or whatever. And you jump into that and you're able to say like, you know, well, I, I was there, you know, and acquired or participated. And, you know, obviously, you know, that's important to people, as we were saying earlier in regards to music too, when people say you sell out, but, you know, it's always good to celebrate the folks that, that are able to level up, you know, in that sense, like provided they haven't compromised themselves yeah. too much, you know, mm-hmm. if, they, if they find success, that's good. That's what we should want for each other. Are there common mistakes or assumptions or misconceptions artists make about uh, about their brand or in finding their brand? Yeah, I don't I don't know how to answer that question out of the gate. Think mm-hmm. that like everybody's shaped differently. Let me let me say it this way. We might think it's wrong externally, but it's very difficult to say that it is wrong internally for that person if they're working through some processes or whatever, like we don't necessarily see the 300 sketches. We just see the final rendition oftentimes. Mm -hmm. And a brand can be that way too. It's okay to try something out and it not to work and you to come back to that thing and do it again. And in that sense, like even how to create a personal brand in 10 steps, it does that too. Mm -hmm. To where it's like, okay, well you can work through these steps. And then at the very end, the instruction is to, find someone else to do this with you mm-hmm. and work through these steps again. And like, it's not to say that you need to work through the exact same process to redevelop what you created for yourself, but seeing how you fit into a group dynamic and then utilizing that to reflect back on what you created for yourself, you might say, well, you know, what I did before doesn't necessarily speak to where I am today. 
Mm-hmm. And it's okay to toss that stuff out. You know, brands do it all the time. Look at the the logo for Coca-Cola over the last 135 years or whatever is it's yeah. developed. Yeah. Sure, there's lots of continuity there, but it's also been refined. Pepsi, the same, McDonald's, any of the major brands that you see, they're constantly tweaking and refining things mm-hmm. um, because, you know, it might not work for the platforms that exist mm-hmm. in 10 years like or so, or yeah changing changing styles and tastes and what have you right right yeah, absolutely yeah. not only the stylistic stuff but let, let's say like look back into the 1990s before social media existed yeah and you know were companies thinking about squares and circles in terms of logo design and emblems and stuff like that no not really Sure, they had these components, but they weren't so focused on the constraints, the shape constraints that we currently have now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's to say that, like, uh, for better or worse, you know, um, that's where we are today mm-hmm. and, and things will change. One thing that everyone listening right now can do to begin building a stronger more focused brand identity and and this is this is an opening brother for a uh, for a pitch for your uh, for your course yeah so what i would say is the one thing that everybody can do is reduce right whatever you've got try to simplify it uh-huh. if you can say it with less then that is probably uh you've probably got more oftentimes people that um, are trying to craft with words, are saying things with too many words. You know, mm-hmm. if you can say it with less words, uh, you have a very short period of time to catch people's attention. You can hear my full interview with Michael Finney at my arts podcast, Playtime with W.C. Turk. Earlier in the program, we heard from David W. Berner, who began an experiment publishing his online novel on the online publishing platform Substack. That was back in February. I spoke with David again two months into that project for an update. Here is part of that conversation. When last we heard from our hero, David W. Berner, he was battling his way through the daunting maze of attracting readers and even generating a bit of revenue. We now return to the front lines of that eternally unresolved struggle. David had just released the first three chapters of of his online novel, Rainbow Man. The place, Substack, the online publishing forum. Let's see how David is faring in his epic quest. Uh, Too too dramatic? Yeah, that, that's really dramatic, but you know, it's a new era and we're trying new things. So it, it deserves a little bit of drama, I think. Yeah, sure, why not? So the piece that we began with was from our, our conversation uh, roughly about six weeks ago when you were when you were just beginning to promote Rainbow Man. I think I think yeah. at that point you would had two, maybe maybe the third chapter up, and the, and, the, and those were free chapters. Sandman, a golf tale is being released in a more traditional sense, as opposed to exclusively online as as Rainbow Man. Can we read anything into the difference in publishing methods about your experience with with Substack? Yeah, to revisit the Substack idea, 
it really uh, began as an experiment and still uh -huh. pretty much is okay. an experiment. And I can tell you a little bit about, you know, what I've learned so far. I Absolutely. Think. But, you know, Sandman is a traditional publisher. Round Fire and John Hunt Publishing in the UK is a traditional publisher. My book is traditionally published, and several of my books with them have been traditionally published. Walks with Sam was produced by them, published mm -hmm. by them. They are like many medium-sized uh, publishing houses out there. They have a division that does traditional publishing. They have a division that does hybrid publishing. So mm -hmm. when they feel a book has a could gain a larger audience, they traditionally mm -hmm. publish it when they think it might need some help or mm -hmm. maybe is not going to be that book that's going to um, be opened up to the world in, in one way or another, then they hybrid publish it. So it's very much a marketing and sales driven decision for them. And that's, mm -hmm. you know, publishers, that's what they do. They have to sell books. So I've been lucky enough to have my books traditionally published, and that is a very traditional process. Mm -hmm. You have an editor, he looks at the work, you go over it, you work with marketing people, it's very traditional. Substack, uh, people who don't know, is an online platform that began a few years ago. It's gained notoriety over the years here, the very months really, because some big name writers have joined the jump uh, with us. Mm. The author of the Fight Club is on there. Salman Rushdie is doing work on there. Patty Smith is doing work on there. There's a mm -hmm. couple of others, a lot of medium, um, no name sort of authors like me in a way getting on there. And they're really trying to find out. I think what everybody's trying to find out is that this is a new platform for creative work. So far, what I've learned is that if you already have a name and you already have a very big name, it works like a charm. Because you can draw people. Patty Smith can certainly draw people, mm -hmm. right? So, and she's drawing people who may ne never have read their book, her books because she's Patty Smith, right? Mm -hmm. So that is working just fine. Uh, mm -hmm. And I think that would work true for most other platforms. I think people like me who, you know, have a somewhat of a small following out there, but, all, all, but you know, still are kind of in that medium range mm -hmm. of authors if, at best, uh, which is really kind of most of us. I think, and I don't mean this to be a coy, but I think the decision is still out. I'll tell you what I've learned, though. I've learned that people are slow to change their reading habits. I had a friend who would go nameless at this point who said to me, well, I started reading it and I love the story. I can't get used to getting something every week and reading something every week online. Yeah. It's just I'm not it's not working for me. And, and I, you know, he felt bad telling me that. And I said, no, I, I totally understand it. I mean, that's kind of what the experiment was about to kind of learn this. And I had this novel already written. I didn't know what I really wanted to do with it. And I thought this would be a good place to try. Mm -hmm. So I'm getting a little bit of that. I reached out to, to uh, the subscribers uh, about a month or two ago. I, and I said, hey, would you like this material earlier? Would you like it to come more frequently rather than once a week? I had a resounding no, which I was surprised. Wow. Yeah. So there's two things going on here. I think people see this as something they need to learn to understand and do if they really are a good, a big reader. Mm -hmm. But the sort, sort of traditional readers, the ones who are also very adverse to Kindles of the world, mm -hmm. don't want this. They may see the book as exciting and interesting the story good enough for them to spend some time with but the platform doesn't work for them so i have a i have sort of like two two avenues going on here at the same time i'm still trying to figure out if it ever will switch 
Mm-hmm. If it ever will make ever there ever will be enough people who will like this process. Mm-hmm. What is working though on Substack, even for people who are not well known, is if you are writing about writing or if you are writing blog style entries mm-hmm. on a particular subjects that interest somebody, those seem to be doing taking off really well. Mm-hmm. But if you're writing fiction or literary fiction, it's a bit of a tougher slog. Are you yeah. seeing new eyeballs on, on on your work? Yeah, I am because I can okay. see the analytics. I can see like it's done by stars on on Substack on the back end. I can look at it and see even by email who has spent time reading. Mm-hmm. Um, now, how detailed how detailed are the analytics or the metrics? They're not crazy detailed, but okay. they are they they certainly are enough there to make you see. Okay. What what might be happening? Like I had a, a fair amount of people really interested in reading those first couple chapters. Yeah. And then that's when I got a little bit, you know, a, a heavier number of, of people who signed up. Mm-hmm. And then I had people who signed up kind of drop off on their reading. I could see the drop off. Now, maybe that's the story. You know, maybe they don't, they're not as enthralled about the story. It gives you a time duration. It of... kind of gives you an idea. Okay. Yeah, it gives okay. you a good idea. That's but critical. I, I, that's very important. I think that's more than anything else. It's really not about story. It's about whether this platform is right for fiction. Mm -hmm. I I think that's what it really comes down to. And I'm not sure yet. And maybe, maybe we have to, maybe there will be a, 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 you know, sort of a subcategory of people who will do this sort of like people do with, you know, Kindles or eBooks, right? Yeah. There's a very strong, loyal group, but they're not real big. Yeah. So I also yeah. think that that might be the case here, where there's going to be a very strong, loyal group of people who will read this way. Is is it a matter of of people dialing in to read read it read a, a chapter at a time, or is it is it and then and then in that 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 week interim or month interim or, or whatever whatever the length of time is that that you that you post that their interest or their attention falls away. Yeah, I think there's probably some of that. But then again, like I said, I, I mean, I, I post every week, every yeah, Friday, yeah, chapter yeah, comes out. Yeah. So I asked, you know, do you want two chapters a week? Do you want one to come on a Wednesday? And mm-hmm. I had a resounding no. So mm-hmm. I, I'm, a little, I'm a little perplexed by that, actually. I thought for sure I would have people say, give me more now. You know, because, you know, the way I read a book, I don't necessarily sit down and read a chapter a week. I mean, I read a book in a day and a half sometimes. Yeah, you know, yeah, and it's so, sitting, yeah. Yeah, so um, I'm, I'm not sure what that's all about. I, I do, I have had recently, I kind of, I put a note out to all my free subscribers, the ones that subscribed in the early going to, you know, kind of see what it was all about. I put a note out to them the other day and said, hey, free subscribers, you still have an opportunity to become a paid subscriber read the whole book and get a physical book at the end of the, at the end of the run mm-hmm. in the summer when it comes out. And I had a few more people go, Oh yeah, I forgot about that. I mean, I could just see the wheels turning. Right. Mm-hmm. And I had a few more people sort of say, Oh yeah, I forgot that I did that. And you can catch up, you know, you can go right now and be a paid subscriber and read the first 14 chapters that are out there now. So mm-hmm. it's not like you're, you're going to miss anything because they're all there. But you have to be a paid subscriber to get more than the first three. So I think it's still uh, not quite clear. 
My guess is, though, as I said before, I think it will turn out to be something that has a very loyal audience, but it'll be a relatively small audience. That's, okay. that's my guess. When you post, is there an opportunity for people to give feedback or notes? In other words, is there there's sort of a a reciprocal marketing opportunity or 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 kind of a data mining opportunity with the audience? Yeah, I, there is a there is a tab at the end of every chapter that says leave a comment. I've had very few comments. Uh huh. Um, so I don't see it as, which I thought my, what it might turn out to be is more of an interactive experience. Yeah. I'm not really, I'm not really seeing that frankly. Um, not yet, but as far as like, you know, monitoring and branding and sort of gathering information, I have all the emails of everybody, you know, uh -huh, uh -huh. and I can email them as a free subscriber, as a paid subscriber, as all my subscribers to tell them. And I've done that. I've done some video updates like, hey, we're halfway through the book. You, know, mm -hmm, you might want to think mm -hmm. about coming along and things of that sort. I try not to bombard people, though. I, mm -hmm. I think that that gets, you know, sort of like a ubiquitous um, you know, Instagram ad that pops up on your stream that you just can't stand seeing for the <laughs> time. So I, I try not to I try not to do that too much. But yet there is a, a part of us who anybody who markets books and works in this, you know, does work in this field. You may not like it, but you, you do have to keep pounding the door sometimes. And, and it's, you know, it's not fun sometimes. And it mm -hmm. feels a little like a used car salesman, salesman sometimes. But, you know, we kind of have to do it, especially in the landscape that we're, we're working in. I, I want to get into the numbers here just a little bit, but I, I had one quick follow-up on, on the metrics. Are you able to see demographics like age and location? And No, uh, and it, there might be something in there that I haven't found yet but okay. no I, I really don't uh, a lot of the people that have become subscribers to this are also subscribers to like my newsletter right um and things like that there are a few people who are not like i don't know those i don't know those emails at all mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um and some of that has come through substack one thing you can't see though is you can see uh i think there are five or six different categories where you can see where those people who are reading that particular chapter, where they came from. Did okay. they come to you through an email? Did they come to you through Instagram? Did they come to you through something else? Okay. That's really helpful. That's really helpful because you can see whether, you know, maybe the post that you made on Instagram was, was, you know, was landing in the right spot or not. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. You can definitely see that. Um, I can tell you that most of what I'm seeing though, are people who are coming to me through emails. So that means that they're getting the, the weekly email that says, hey, the new chapter's out, here it is, mm -hmm. and they're coming to it. That, that seems to be the, the majority of where the people are coming, how, the, how they're getting to me. Okay, yeah. the numbers. What, was there a change uh, in the numbers from those first three offerings, and was there a net gain or a net loss once the paid subscription aspect kicked in? Oh, definitely, net, net, the numbers went down. From, okay. from the free subscription to the paid. And that's, okay. I, I knew that would happen. I mean, I think anybody who's done this on this platform knows that that's the way it happens. Yeah. You know, it's just like if, you know, if you were in a store and somebody offered you a free sample, everybody's getting a free sample, but only 10% of those people mm -hmm. actually go buy the cheese, mm -hmm. you know, you know mm -hmm. what I mean? So, um, you know, that's kind of a given. I, I, I kind of knew that would be the case. Mm -hmm. I would say from what I can think of now, I'd say about 10% free subscribers that were first initiated 
mm -hmm. uh, are are now paid subscribers. That's great. And I don't I, I don't know if that's a good number, bad number. I don't know. I have to ask a marketing person, but there, it's about ten percent. You know, I, I just remember years and years ago when I was when I was in advertising, they had they had these these three page flyers, the the mailers that that were sent out in mass, and I think the industry was really excited if you got a three percent return uh, on those mailers. So uh, yeah. ten percent sounds sounds for at least from a marketing and advertising standpoint sounds like a like a net positive. Yeah, I, I, I guess it is. I, I know the one thing that is true, and I know it's a good number. I'm, uh -huh. I'm really thrilled about this. The open rate on those emails uh -huh. is somewhere around 35%, which wow. I understand is really big. Yeah. yeah. I mean, usually it's like between 18 and 25. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So the open rate on the emails is about 35%, which I'm, I was, I was, I'm really happy about. It's not necessarily transforming to... I opened the email, so now yeah. I'm going to be a paid subscriber. That hasn't actually shown that same number. Okay, that okay, hasn't really, that hasn't happened quite yet. You know, but at the very least, you're know, you're again, motivated. Again, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I, I'm getting people interested, uh -huh. and I think I'm getting people converted. You know, there's there's a subjective element in here that I'll never really know unless people put comments on. I mean, are they liking yeah. the story? I mean, let's get yeah. real. I mean, yeah. they yeah. might be four chapters in and they're like, you know, this isn't for me. Mm -hmm. That's okay. Mm -hmm. But, you know, there's really no way for me to know that unless they leave a comment. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I encourage people who are subscribers out there to leave a comment because it really does kind of help me know what how this is working and not. I, I guess the logical question to to the last the, the last comment that you, that you made about the 35% opening emails is there is there a structural is there is there a branding or a marketing technique that you utilized that maybe made it more attractive as as i recall the the emails from you are are pretty straightforward about the new chapters out and did you did you have a strategy for for kind of pulling pulling people to those emails no i, I can't really say that i did i mean i'm certainly not you know i don't want to claim in any fashion yeah. that I am some kind of marketing genius. I, I'm not. I just know what has worked for me in the yeah. past, you know, kind of keep churning that same thing out. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, I try to keep this, I try to keep the emails very simple. Here's the mm -hmm. next chapter. I hope you'll be a subscriber. If you missed a few and even a free subscriber will get a chapter, they'll get the, cha you know, they'll get the, the email mm -hmm. and it'll have maybe the first paragraph of the story. And then it'll say subscribe. You know, so they're still getting reminded in mm -hmm. a way. You know, I can't say that I have a huge conversion on that. Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But when I poke people a little bit and say, hey, you know, you can still subscribe. We're more than halfway through the story, but you can still read it. That's helped a little. So I might do that again. Uh, four or five chapters along the way here. I might jump out there again and say, hey, you know, you can still subscribe. And now there's so many chapters on there. You can read them all in one day if you want, you know, mm -hmm. which also might be an interesting thing to remind them about that they don't have to wait a week. Uh, obviously, with, with anything, any any new platform, any new technology, there's a significant learning curve. Yeah. Oh, yeah. no yeah. question. And I and I did this with the purpose of, you know, I like the story. I think the story is a good story. I think mm -hmm. Rayman is a good story. And I've had some people say that to me. You know, in other emails who are mm -hmm. paid subscribers, 
who have said, you know, it's a good story or have posted on, a, you know, a, something that I did on social media about it. So I, I feel like it's, you know, a strong story. Uh, yeah, I do. Yeah. Now, is it for everybody? Of course it's not. Not every book is for everybody. Um, but um, but I did this to learn. I, I really did. I'm, I'm using my, you know, my creative work uh, in, a, in a very different way than I've ever done before. And it's an experiment. Now, the only reason I did it this way is because I still have the opportunity to release the book in the summer. Mm-hmm. You know, the physical book will be available in the summer. So it's not as if I'm, you know, just putting it online and forgetting about it. It's still mm-hmm. going to have that traditional element to it at the end. Mm-hmm. Um, but this part, uh, and I don't think I would have done it if I didn't, if I didn't do that part, that, that, that second part. Yeah. I don't yeah. think I would have just put it online and then walked away mm-hmm. because what, well, and I'm glad I didn't because I'm still finding there are a lot of people who just haven't fallen into this pattern or this platform doesn't necessarily sit well with them. It doesn't, it doesn't work for them. I'm finding that. Yeah. Not a lot, but there's, there's definitely some people who have told me that. Yeah. Uh, are you going to post the new novel on Substack and kind of begin creating uh, creating a, an, an alternate stream and an alternate marketing aspect and, and, and a bit of a bit of an online library here. Well, I have another Substack page, if you call it, uh-huh. called The Abundance. It's called The Abundance and it's completely free. Uh, okay. And it's just something I post to like maybe every week or yeah. Yeah. week and a half. And um, I've been doing some things on there that are related to Sandman, you know, like mm-hmm. I wrote a piece mm-hmm. the other day about, about golf. Um, uh, during the masters, you know, something I was thinking about. So I'm using that in a way, not only to talk about things I want to talk about, but also to, you know, I'm trying to get the word out there on, on other things too. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, um, and, and that's a completely free thing too. Um, so, you know, I have, a, I have another colleague who has said to me, has called me the energizer bunny. <laughs> and if, you hear, if she hears this uh, podcast, she'll know who I'm talking about. Um, and I, I, I you know, I, I take that as a compliment. Um, You're pretty prolific, man. Well, and I think part of that is, is my broadcast background. You know, yeah. it's like, what have you done for me in the last five minutes? <laughs> so I'm, I'm, I, I have that sensitivity built into my creative uh-huh. life. Uh-huh. So whether that's good or bad, I, you know, maybe time will tell, but I don't know how to do it in any other way because that's kind of built into how I, how I work. Yeah. 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 Substack has gone on record saying that they are against opening up the platform to advertising, but is there an internal cross marketing on the site is, is, or is it just, is it just you and your audience? It's me and my audience. I have seen no evidence of any advertising um, elements and I've seen no advertising influence on Substack. Yeah. I mean, if you're talking about a pure place to put your work Mm -hmm. on, to me, it's the purest right now. Mm -hmm. If you're Mm -hmm. talking about online. Yeah. Yes. There is no, there is nothing there. And it is, I mean, I love it. I hope that never changes. They've, uh, they, they've, they, they've said as much, so it, it doesn't look like that's, uh, uh, that's part of their business model, which I think is, is, a, is a wonderful idea. Um, I, I, wanted, I wanted to get off the marketing track a little bit, and 
there's been there's been some controversy about Substack, and with regard to uh, uh, anti-trans um, or or anti-vax um, sites or pages. I know I know from 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 being on Spotify that through with my podcast that people called me out because of the Joe Rogan thing. What what advice would you give to to a, a Substack user when they're when they're confronted with that sort of criticism of this of the overall site? Yeah, that's a good question. I think for me though, I, I would say the same thing I would to anybody who's out there creating work. Do what you do and deal yeah. with what you do. Yeah. And if you are uncomfortable, like you know, Neil Young and David Crosby and other people have been with subs with Spotify, mm-hmm. right? And they have backed away. If you feel uncomfortable and feel you don't want your work in any way connected to that, then then that's your prerogative and you should do that. Yeah. But you know, just like Spotify and Substack is not. It's not, uh, you know, 99.9%, you know, anti-Semite or anti-gay yeah. or anti, yeah. it just isn't. I mean, if, all yeah. you get to do is look at the sites, you know, it's, mm-hmm. not, it's not true at all. There are plenty that are positive about subjects like that. So, you know, I don't want to sort of ride the fence here, but, you know, I think we, I think we tend to get a little oversensitive about this mm-hmm. kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, look, I, I, I dropped my Spotify account on over Joe Rogan, my own personal account. But that's mm-hmm. me. That's just my decision. Mm-hmm. I, I went to Apple Music, which is probably has got its own issues. Right. But, you know, I just didn't feel right about it. So I, I, I just dropped my subscription. And, and that was my own personal thing. I don't, you can do whatever you want. Anybody else can do whatever they want, mm-hmm. whatever their sensitivities are. But I think what you have to keep in mind, especially for someone who is a creator, is that the more voices with more diversity, good or bad, is better in the long run. And those who are on the fringes will go by the wayside at some point. By, by the numbers, is there value for the writer in your estimation, your experience now in publishing through Substack uh, or, uh, or any of the other online publishing services over traditional publishing or self-publishing? I think there's a really good opportunity there, mm-hmm. but just like any of these other platforms, I think certain genres do better. Nonfiction blog kind of entries tend to do better on Substack than fiction. Mm-hmm. Uh, even fantasy fiction writers, some very good ones out there are not doing as well as they thought they would. Now, mm-hmm. I don't want to speak for all of them because some of them may be doing just fine, but from what my anecdotal evidence, you know, not everybody's doing well with fiction, but that doesn't mean you can't do well with other things. You know, right. my abundance site, I think, is doing great. And that's all, you know, basically nonfiction, personal essay kind of stuff. So I think it depends on the genre. Mm-hmm. Fiction online is hard everywhere. It just is. It's hard everywhere. Uh, it's hard in the publishing world now. Yeah. You know, yeah. Um, you know, people, again, I uh, this might be a really broad stroke, but People don't read novels anymore. I mean, unless they are, let's say, are big books and whatever you want to call a big book, you know, is it because it's sold a lot or because it's controversial or I don't know. Although, although every time I go into one of the, um, uh, I, I just spoke with a, uh, with a friend whose son is, uh, he's going through some therapy. He's, he's, he's 
blazing through uh, through books. And so every every time I go into a bookstore, they're all packed. Yeah. And I, you know, I love all my bookstore owners, especially the ones in Chicago that have done been so supportive of me. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. But I do think there's a little bit of an incestual thing there. You know, if you're a bookstore person, you're going to go back to that bookstore a lot. I think I'd heard something like 11 percent of the population buys 80 percent of the books or something. Yeah, that 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 doesn't surpress me at all. Mm -hmm. What? 11% 11% of 380 million is a lot of people. <laughs> That's pretty good. <laughs> Just a quick note, we are using Substack as a model for illustration purposes because David published there. There are a growing number of online publishing forums. You are encouraged to check out which platform best suits you, your needs, and budget, and find the best fit for your work. David W. Berner's online novel at Substack is Rainbow Man. We will link to that in the notes below. His new novel, Sandman, A Golfer's Tale, is out July 1st, 2022, and is available for pre-order now. His website is davidwburner.com, and we will also link to David's page in the notes. You're, you're brilliant, man. I, I love and learn an encyclopedic amount of, of facts and knowledge every time I speak. Well, that that's really wonderful for you to say it. Yeah, I'm humbled by that. I love being on your, your show and I love talking about these things and huh? uh, I, I do greatly appreciate it. I know people say that all the time, but I truly do. You've been listening to Chicago Writes, a podcast of the Chicago Writers Association. I'm your host, W.C. Turk. Links to our featured guests are in the notes below, as well as links to the Chicago Writers Association. Until next time. Support this podcast by simply clicking the subscribe button to receive notification about all of our upcoming episodes, upcoming events, and programs from the Chicago Writers Association, chicagorights.org. Our theme song, Midnight Ride, is courtesy of Dino Lovchich. Find Dino's music on YouTube and on Spotify. Spotify.